Tonight I'd like to talk about equanimity. In the meditation instructions here we greatly emphasize mindfulness, awareness, wise presence. We need to be awake and present if we want to investigate, if we want to explore our hearts and minds and our lives. Mindfulness alone isn't enough though in order to allow for real inner transformation. We also need to cultivate a helpful inner attitude so as to be able to meet ourselves and others in a wise and kind way. It's the inner attitude of equanimity which makes this possible. First I'd like to tell a story on equanimity or perhaps on what it isn't. It's from Van der Wettering's Empty Mirror. It's about the Zen master and a young man practicing Zen at the temple. One day there was an earthquake so strong that part of the temple collapsed. Once things had quietened down again, the master said to the young man there. The young man practicing at the monastery. Okay, so the master says, Today I've been able to you have been able to witness the way a Zen master behaves in moments of crisis, moments of calamity. You must have noticed that I didn't panic. I took you by the arm and led you to the kitchen because that's the safest part of the monastery. I was right to do so since the kitchen is still intact and we survived the earthquake well. You may have noticed that in spite of my equanimity and awareness, I had a mild shock because I drank uh, a big glass of water. That's something I wouldn't have done under normal circumstances. The young man didn't answer, but only smiled. What's so funny about it? The master asked. It wasn't water, venerable sir. It was a big glass of soya sauce. actually quite a trendy topic, this equanimity. Recently I found a whole table full of books on equanimity in our biggest bookstore in Bern, where I live. The motivation and the approach may be a little different from what we're trying to get at here. I remember one book was titled, Equanimity Wins, a fit for business book. How to regularly deal with questions, reproaches, and attacks. <laughs> Even there can use, be useful, I guess. I'd like to talk about two different aspects of the practice of equanimity. One is equanimity in relation to all experiences, moment to moment, as we practice it here in insight meditation, in Vipassana. And secondly, equanimity as one of the four so-called Brahma-viharas. 
in its function among the Brahma-viharas. Brahma-viharas being kindness, compassion, appreciative joy and equanimity. And I'll explain more about that. We all, all of us, would like to be happy and not suffer. Because of that, we constantly try, day in, day out, every moment, to get what's pleasant and to avoid what's unpleasant. We're attached to pleasant experiences of the body, of hearing, Maybe sweet words, nice sounds of seeing, beautiful sights, of smell, pleasant odors, of taste, fine food and drink, of feelings, of thought, nice feelings, pleasant thoughts, memories, hopes, ideas. We desire, we crave for possible pleasant experiences that may come, of body, of hearing, of seeing, of smell, of taste, of feelings, of thought. And on the other hand, we suppress, we avoid, we condemn, we hate unpleasant experiences of body, like pain, of hearing, like noise or criticism, of seeing ugly sights, tasting bad food, of smelling foul smells, feelings and thoughts, maybe painful memories or feelings. We fear, we're afraid of possible future unpleasant experiences of body, of hearing, of seeing, of smelling, of tasting, of feelings and thoughts. It's quite normal. We're all familiar with this if we look into our heart and mind and its reactions. And yet it's exactly what causes the most difficulties in our lives. This constant reactiveness that is the cause of all our inner suffering. Fears and worries and sorrow and conflicts and depression and loneliness and anger and hatred and longing and sadness and confusion and agitation and turmoil and the whole list. Aldous Huxley wrote, about the third of all human suffering is unavoidable. The other two thirds arise because of our unsuccessful attempts to avoid the first third. I would put the unavoidable suffering even a lot lower than one third. It's hard to tell. It's not the same for everyone, for everyone's life. It's this kind of inner reactivity, an unskillful way of taking care of the one third of pain, the most unhelpful attitude most unhelpful way of relating to ourselves and to life. And we all know very well that it would be infinitely more helpful and also more fun to live in a way that's wise, that's equanimous and serene. So equanimity, inner balance, poise, or in the spaciousness is what we all need and what we all wish for. On the battlefield of our, of our hearts and minds, it's the attitude, the quality that makes 
serenity and peace possible. In then they say, let the inner bird fly in the vast sky of your equanimity. Liberate the fish in the bottomless ocean of your tolerance. The sense of that spaciousness of this quality. So what exactly is it, this equanimity, this inner spaciousness? Texts define it as the perception of an object, of an experience, with the balanced heart and mind. Maybe it means, you could say, seeing impartially, seeing things as they are without reacting towards or against them. The quality of presence that is free from attachment and craving and free from aversion or hatred, which also implies free from expectation or fear, not leaning forward into not dropping against. Equanimity is also that quality which keeps the mind free from restlessness on one hand and free from dullness on the other. It's free from confusion with a wakeful energy, alive, in contact, not disengaged. So already it's quite obvious extraordinarily clear and powerful state of heart and mind, far away from all forms of indifference. A very wonderful inequality to aspire to. A classical illustration is the well-known Zen story of the monk and the warrior. The enemy's army has won the victory The soldiers are looting the city. All those able to flee have left the city. One monk, the abbot, stays in the main temple of the city. The general hears about it. He goes there and storms into the temple, brandishing his sword, his screams. Monk, don't you know I'm someone who can run this sword through you without blinking an eye? The monk looks at him quietly responds. And don't you know, I am someone who can be run through by your sword without blinking an eye. So the general stops and bows to the monk and leaves. Equanimity means we meet all the situations and experiences of life with equal courage. I like that image. I got it from the German word for equanimity, which means literally equal courage, Gleichmut. You meet things with the courage. Now, of course, we may not be these great Zen masters, perhaps, like the monk in the story. Also, most of the time, it may be wiser, actually, to flee because you don't know how real-life generals react. (laughs) Nobody can tell. But we train ourselves in this quality of equanimity, off-balance, 
we practice this in the meditation and in everyday life. It's not this that we practice in meditation, in retreat. I would doubt the value of the whole exercise. It's not really this that we're training here. I'm not sure what we're doing here. So central, so crucial. Or do we meditate in the hope of reaching some extraordinary state, super state, or to create specially pleasant experiences? Is that the reason we're still here? I'm not sure, maybe I, I could imagine better ways to get pleasant feelings, you know, than sitting and walking all day long. Is it to have nice feelings? Do we practice meditation and go to retreats filled with expectations on one hand and with fears and worries on the other? Fears and hopes? I'm sure sometimes we do, isn't it? I go on retreat next Tuesday and I have a few. Not so much expectations, but a few words. And I think it's okay, okay to some extent. Yet also I think if we practice with this attitude, whenever we practice with this attitude, we miss the crux of the whole thing. We sort of scavenge through the wrapping paper and we overlook the gift, the essence. What meditation and practice really is all about is a training in equanimity. When we sit and the shoulder is tight, or suddenly there's this familiar cutting pain in the knee, when we're suddenly flooded by a heat wave, or we freeze, then there are all opportunities to practice in the balance, instead of fighting within and no, imperceptively trying to squiggle, squirming, shifting the posture a little, but not really, to avoid things. Or when suddenly it gets still inside, quiet and very pleasant, then that too is an opportunity to practice equanimity, rather than a reason to figure out how we could repeat the feeling, what we could do to keep it, to prolong it, or whatever. You know, this was good. I was sitting like this. I had my hands like this, and I was breathing quite deeply. I'll try again. But when fear, or joy, or loneliness, or connectedness arise in our heart, again, it's an opportunity to cultivate in this spaciousness. In life, in daily life too, we practice equanimity relating to the eight or more winds of the world. There's always, over and over again, there's gain and there's loss. There's plain sometimes, there's bread. Blame, there's praise. Sometimes for the same thing, somebody praises us, somebody blames us. Success, there's failure, good reputation, 
bad reputation. Also, sometimes we may end up quite rich, we may end up quite poor, have good health, or be ill. In short, we practice inner balance with everything that's pleasant or unpleasant in life. Really comes down over and over and over again to our relationship to pleasant and unpleasant experience on every level. The Buddha said, just as a big rock is not shaken by the wind, the wise ones are not shaken by praise or blame or any of those worldly winds of gain and loss. Instead of endlessly reacting with attachment and desire or with hatred and aversion, we practice inner spaciousness or in other words, accepting and letting go. That's really what it comes down to. You would have to explain to yourself what equanimity consists of. It consists of allowing, accepting, letting the experience be what it is, especially when we find it's difficult to accept it, usually when it's unpleasant, and to let it go when it changes and disappears by itself. And that's usually difficult when it's pleasant and we want to keep it. So accepting, letting be on one hand when things that we don't want stay and don't go away. And letting go when things that we want do go away. And that is just the ingredient, so to speak, of equanimity, what makes up equanimity. That's what inner peace and serenity come from. That's where genuine inner freedom lies. Tibetan teachers give an illustration of what this equanimous mind, heart, could look like. The vast open space of the sky isn't particularly flattened by the rainbow nor shaken by the rain clouds or the storm. In one way, it's quite an inspiring image, isn't it? Yet here one could also get the impression that this means that we're equally distant from all beings, from all things. And yet exactly the opposite is true. It means we're equally close to all beings and all things because we're in contact. So what we're talking about here is a state of wakeful aliveness and sensitivity. And it's not the so-called mere enemy of equanimity, which is an absence of contact, an absence of participation, which is indifference. Indifference, that is, the near enemy of genuine equanimity, may be taken for being equanimity, but isn't because it's disconnected, it's aloof. Sometimes people, or we, might think that Buddhists try to cut all the peaks of experience, you know, and then fill all the valleys with it. It's kind of a popular idea, Buddhists might hear sometimes. Now if by this we mean we cut 
the dramatic, passionate, suffering, creating, emotional drama, then I'd say maybe it's quite useful. Yet, there are the genuinely happy, crystal clear, boundless inner spaces of insight, of kindness, of joy. And the peaks of experiences that can be part of genuine spiritual practice. And they're only possible within a framework of pervasive equanimity. There are the deeply touching and heart-opening inner spaces of profound calm, connectedness, compassion. These depths of experience too are part of genuine spiritual practice. And yet they too are permeated by equanimity. So to make inner transformation possible, we need to fully experience all things of life in their depth. So there is no place for indifference. To see and understand ourselves, we need genuine interest in all our energy. And I think that has to go together with that quality. That is part of that quality of equanimity. There is no space for half-heartedness. Now, there's a misunderstanding that can easily creep in, particularly when one hears these dramatics and stories. I'd like to clarify. Of course, we will fall out of balance over and over again we will be reactive, not just because we understood that it's not useful that we won't react anymore. We react against our better knowledge, against our better understanding. We will be flooded by irritation and aversion. We will be gripped by attachment and desires. Because we're too slow, we're not awake, not clear enough at times, in the face of our deeply conditioned patterns of reactivity. That's okay, you know. It's unavoidable. Yet as soon as we become aware of this process, of this falling out of balance, of this reactivity, then it's time for equanimity, and equanimity towards ourselves, towards our own reactive patterns. And that doesn't mean we don't care. Equanimity here doesn't mean indolence. But it means not judgment or punishment, but kindness is what is needed when we do fall out of balance, when we do find ourselves reacting in ways that aren't useful and that are painful. So we need to have a kind equanimity towards our ways of being that maybe don't meet up to our standards that we would like to keep up. Otherwise, we struggle and fight and measure up against high ideals and again, we'll fail or feel like we're failures. And we're not. We're doing this amazing practice and we're training ourselves. That's the best we possibly can do. We need maybe a gentle equanimity a kind equanimity. We feel the difficult, unpleasant emotion and we stay in contact with it. 
When we do that, we feel we see what it does to us. We directly see, feel how it makes us suffer. And then from that, if we can stay open to that, compassion arises. Not being judgmental, but being compassionate is then the response to the situation. That's very different. It's a wise and healing inner attitude of understanding, of openness, of compassion. It's far from disconnectedness, the disconnectedness of suppression. Because we meet ourselves with genuine interest, awake and alive. The deepest equanimity really arises out of insight, out of wisdom. It comes from seeing the ever-changing, impermanent, non-graspable, non-self-existent nature of all things and of ourselves. And really that's where our kind attention that we're practicing all day long is more and more aiming towards or looking at. As you go through the days, maybe you realize that more and more it doesn't matter what the experience is. What matters is that we're present for it, that we meet it and see what its nature is. is. And what do we see? Even if it's sleepiness and not wide awakeness, it comes and goes. Confusion comes and goes. And insights, unfortunately, come and go. We see something, it's very clear. We can't understand why we're not always new. And we know, well, that forever now we have understood. And five minutes later, you know, we're stuck in some other thing and we don't, we hardly remember the insight. And then something else comes. Kindness comes and goes. Rain comes and goes. Heat comes and goes. To more and more see that changing nature, that's the nature of all things that are born, that are composed have come into existence. Seeing that, we start to more easily let go. Seeing that things come and do their dance according to their own law convinces us to more easily accept the way they are because we can't just change them more often than not. So we start to see that it's an incredible show that does its thing and we're part of the show. It's not I who watch the show, but this is what's going on, this flow, this dance. Long Chempa, the great Tibetan Sokchen master, speaks about this in an ultimate sense. He says, since everything is mere appearance, it appears and disappears. It seems to be so real, but it isn't. Since everything is mere appearance, complete in what it is, beyond good or bad, beyond acceptance or rejection, one can simply break out in laughter. The laughter of wisdom, laughter of accepting and letting go, the laughter of the capacity to accept and letting go. If we really can do that, we can do that even in the face of great difficulties, maybe even at the time of dying, will have a very helpful 
very high level of inner freedom. So that's why we cultivate insight here, so that we can meet all things with fullness and yet free from grasping, free from this reactiveness towards or away from it. Whenever we see and experience that nothing in existence can be held on to and let go and let be with a gentle equanimity, then the experience of life is as it is, quite full and rich. Then we could say, like the Zen nun said, after my house burned down, I gained an unobstructed view of the moonlit sky. Kind of cool. So, as much as I would like to say about the equanimity we practice in connection with the insight meditation, with the Vipassana, I'd like to also look at the practice of equanimity as one of the Brahma Viharas. Brahma Viharas being kindness or metta, compassion or karuna, sympathetic joy or mudita, and equanimity. And particularly, I'd like to look at the interconnection between equanimity and those other three qualities of metta, of kindness, of compassion, of joy. The word Brahma-vihara comes from the Hindu mythology. Vihara means abode, place to be in, to rest in. And the Brahmas are the highest gods or the highest beings in this existence. It's said that these beings abide exclusively in this divine realms or state, which are loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy and equanimity. And it's an interesting statement. It's saying that's the best within conditioned existence, the best places to rest in. Metta, compassion, sympathy, equanimity. With respect to the Brahma-Vihara practice, such as the Metta practice, which we do here, Equanimity has two or more meanings or functions. One is that equanimity refers to the impartiality between people who are usually habitually seen as friends or people who are indifferent to us, so we don't care much about them, or enemies, unliked ones. And in many traditions, one trains in this impartiality by generating kindness or compassion equally towards the different categories as we do here. We do the metta for a benefactor, then for a friend, then for a person that we feel indifferent towards, then for a difficult person. So there's a sense of equalizing our preferences one way of doing this. In other approaches or practices of equanimity, one reflects on the fact that ever so often friends become enemies, become unliked ones. When we think of a friend, there's a sense of inherent 
friendness in there. That's why we're so incredibly disappointed when they turn out, maybe just in a little thing even, not to be friends for five minutes. Because they're, they are friends. And the same with enemies. We may not, you know, good Buddhists don't have enemies, but let's say the difficult people. The people, not even correct, the people we find difficult. And there is some inher- seems to be some inherent difficultness in them. It's in them, isn't it? So one takes examples and contemplates how that isn't really inherently so. If you think of relationships, how they can go from romance to over a few years to indifference, sometimes over a few weeks, and then a few more years to contempt or to outright hatred sometimes. And it's so amazing. You see people and you're with them and you see them as a couple. And then you don't see them for three years. And you meet one of them again. And you mention the other. It's like him or her. And you think, wow, what happened? It can change. And it does change. On the other hand, enemies can become friends too. I find it so interesting in politics how countries who hate each other and go to war six years down the road they sort of make some union or something. I mean, it's good that way. Maybe the US and Japan. Didn't take very long to, to make very close economic ties. Those indifferent to us can become friends. Or the other way around, we start feeling indifferent even to which enemies. Suddenly, we don't care about them anymore. With the constant change of conditions within this existence, beings, people, aren't inherently friendly or adverse. That's why it's neither appropriate nor helpful to relate to them through a value system of friends, neutrals, or enemies. Here again, equanimity acts as an equalizing force and creates balance and appropriateness. It creates the foundation for the palace of unconditional kindness and compassion. Because we then don't make conditions in the sense of saying, I love you if or as long as you like this or you do this. Now, equanimity also means the wisdom that recognizes that in spite of all our good wishes, of love, of compassion, so forth, all beings have to experience the result of their own actions and inattendances. If one keeps on generating hatred, one is certainly not going to reap love and happiness as a result. How well we can deal with difficult and painful situations does not depend on the compassion of others, but on our own inner development, our own capacity to meet the situation with openness, with equanimity. And that's why the phrase used in the equanimity meditation, different from the one in the metta meditation that says, may you be happy, or the one in the Compassion meditation that says, may you be free from suffering, may you be free from pain. Or the one in the 
sympathetic joy meditation that says, may your happiness and your well-being ever increase and continue. The phrase in the equanimity meditation says, you are the heir of your own actions, you're the heir of your own inner tendencies. Your happiness and your unhappiness depends upon your own actions and inner attitudes, not on my good wishes for you. Interesting, isn't it? You are the heir of your own actions, of your own karma, if you wish. Your happiness and your unhappiness depends upon your own actions, not on my good wishes for you. So this statement, after all the heartfelt good wishing of kindness, freedom from suffering, can sound quite cold and in a shocking way indifferent, but it isn't. But this is why this fourth practice of those four Brahma-viharas has to come as the fourth one, as, as the last one in the series of metta, compassion, of sympathetic joy. The good wishes and actions also, not just the good wishes, but the good actions for the welfare of others, here are simply put into the proper perspective by wisdom. By starting to understand and seeing that no matter how well I wish someone, no matter how much I do for them, I can't make them happy. There's no way. Imagine the Buddha would have done it a long time ago. Jesus would have done it a long time ago if he could make everybody happy. So, the qualities of kindness and compassion are framed or held by this equanimity that comes out of wisdom. We wish and we do our best, yet we are not dependent on the success or failure of our actions. Because we know we should do, we want to do, we wish to do our best, and yet it's not in our control. And all beings have to do their own peace to be free, to be free from suffering. It's not only that the Buddha or Christ were unable to simply free all people of their suffering, but actually both of them had enemies who even were after their life. Yet their actions, they were in no way dependent on success or failure. Equanimity protects us from the pride of success. When we act compassionately and it works, and it protects us from the discouragement of failure. It also protects us from burnout in a more practical way. Because burnout is when we give and give and give and somehow when it doesn't succeed the way we want, it drags us down. It's a lack of equanimity. Equanimity also has a direct effect on the three qualities of kindness, of compassion, of appreciative joy. In fact, equanimity is, or it has to be part of metta, of genuine kindness, of genuine compassion. And now, 
try to describe how this works in each case. Well, close. First, equanimity in terms of metta. It protects metta or kindness from getting lost in emotionality, you know, sentimentality. Sometimes metta can go that way. Also, equanimity brings a balance into the heart-mind and you could say it ennobles kindness through a steadiness, a faithfulness, and a loyalty. So that's different from being sentimental. Different kind of grounding or power. It's also here that lies the difference between the nice and pleasant feelings that often can come with the metta and the deeper inner attitude which through thick and thin wishes happiness to all does what one can independently of one's momentary mood. Like you, you sit there and you see somebody who's about to fall down an abyss and they don't see it. You're not sort of first saying, okay, may, may you be free from pain and suffering and then when you start to feel good about them you'll do something. You even may sort of feel very uncomfortable, but react the moment you see the danger. So it's an attitude that isn't just depending or necessarily connected with a nice feeling. And equanimity is there with the kind of metta that is vast that then just feel nice. Equanimity also enriches metta with the quality of patience. The capacity to accept things as they are. The capacity to accept people as they are. Because if we don't do that, if we can't do it, it's not really metta, because it's again conditional. It enables us to continue with our activities independently of the results again. In this way, equanimity is the foundation for metta. Secondly, equanimity gives karuna, or compassion, balance and an unshakable courage and fearlessness, which is very important in connection with compassion. Because equanimity enables compassion to confront, to withstand the nearly overwhelming abyss of suffering and hopelessness that a compassionate heart encounters ever so often. When the suffering is is big, is deep, we shrink, we tend to close off because it's too much. That's when we need to have compassion. And it's that compassion that goes together with... uh, We need to have uh, equanimity, and that's that equanimity that goes with genuine compassion. equanimity which makes it possible to keep the heart open in the face of great suffering. In terms of active compassion, engaged compassion, it's equanimity that allows for a calm and steady continuity. Continuity in one's doing, in one's activity. Capacity that is indispensable for those who practice the difficult art of helping others. 
So equanimity ennobles our enthusiastic compassion through patient dedication. In this way, equanimity is the foundation also for compassion. Thirdly, equanimity keeps appreciative joy, the joy in others' happiness, in others' success, in others' well-being, from becoming some sort of superficial giddiness, from becoming excitement. The wisdom from which equanimity arises gives this appreciative joy a realistic perspective. It ensures that we are not content with small results, but keep the big goal in front of ourselves, the final liberation from all suffering. And this way, equanimity is the foundation for sympathetic joy, too. Equanimity ultimately means unshakability. Equanimity is unperturbability because there's no attachment. Because nothing whatsoever is clung to. I'd like to close with the quote by the Buddha. For those who have attachment, there's agitation. But for those who have no attachment, there's no agitation. Where there's no agitation, there's stillness. Where there's stillness, there's no desire. Where there's no desire, there's neither coming nor going. Where there's neither coming nor going, there's no arising and disappearing, no birth or death. Where there's no arising and disappearing, there's neither this world nor the world beyond, nor anything in between. This is the end of suffering. It's the freedom of unshakable equanimity, the deepest peace, fulfillment. I'd like to say quietly. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.